So the value investor take is, hey, I'm going to hold this thing. And over time, more it's like a collectible, right? People are just going to have more appreciation for it over time, right? Dougals and I are saying, hey, I'm betting on people and I'm betting on hu- human ingenuity and industry. And over time, they're going to go make this thing freaking awesome, right? And that's a wrap, people. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. What's up, Doogles? It was day after day this week. Just, I kept getting all kinds of news from Skippy, just over and over again. And I was like, oh man, overwhelmed was my, my text messages. So maybe drop some of the topic that you sent me text about. Well, I mean, I was super excited. I've been super excited for this week's show because I just remember texting you like nonstop. And I I was like, there's so much news to talk about. And then as I went through my prep this morning, I realized 99% of those were just Dogecoin memes. Um, we got the little dog in the rocket suit. Uh, we got the one where the dog walks down each door and it like he's murdering people. Well, he no, he's murdering price points like one cent, five cents, twenty five cents, and then they have fifty cent the rapper on the door. What else did I send you? I mean, we had some brilliant memes. So when you say ninety nine percent, it actually that was an understatement because I think you had those texts on leverage. You had one hundred twenty percent of your texts were Dogecoin memes. I have three x leverage. So. <laughs> This is where we got to just drop for the listeners. If you haven't heard my Dogecoin story, it's uh, I played with this like eight weeks ago and I have a complete risk-free bet because I put a hundred bucks in and then two hours later, it doubled. I sold all my holdings. So now this is the biggest joke of the show. Please don't go buy Dogecoin people, um, or at least not at the recommendation of the show. This is not a recommendation. Dougals, there's something here. Like this is one of the funniest... No, it's one of the funniest things happening in, you can't even call it the investment space, but let's call it like the financial space right now. These memes around some of these coins are just, it's just hilarious. Like it makes me laugh every single day. And you know, it makes you laugh too. I do. I chuckle. That's true. I do. It gives me some chuckles. Actually, I love watching it. And it's cool just knowing that you've got a, like no real skin in the game, but just like a, you know, I say attention in the game. It's kind of cool. What, but it hit like 60 cents this week. I mean, that's crazy. And you got in, what, at four cents? Yeah, it's at, it was at 70 last night. And here's the thing. Elon Musk, the Doge father, <laughs> is on SNL today. <laughs> it's oh, it's okay. going to go well, crazy. We'll see. And, we'll see when and, this goes. No, so get this. It still is a joke worth absolutely nothing. You, No one should invest in this. But the Oakland Athletics take it as a currency. You can buy merchandise and food. So do the Dallas Mavericks. Like... I don't know how something that was designed as a joke that everyone basically agrees is completely worthless has like picked up this much. I don't even know what it is. I mean, what is this? Nonsense. This is, it is like, it's, it's grabbed the snowball of nonsense and is writing it down the hill is what it's doing. Right. right? Like we're kids of the eighties. How could you create a parallel to the eighties? This is like, man, (laughs) direct. You, you couldn't take some Cabbage Patch kids to your local sports stadium and, like, buy a Broncos jersey. Like, that was not happening. Yeah, I tried. <laughs> All right. We got, a, uh, we got a guest today coming on. Adam Burroughs, welcome. Hey, guys. Great to be here. 
special yeah. guest. Thanks for joining, Adam. I I want to be the first to welcome you to the uh, Skippy Talks Pizza Investing Podcast. See that, Diggles? <laughs> you, you're trying to make spinoffs here. I don't know how I feel about that, but alas. I can um, talk about pizza or investing or Dogecoin or Cabbage. But how about Garbage Pail Kids? Remember those? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That was a great movie. <laughs> if, if I remember that correctly. Fantastic movie. Adam Burroughs is the co-founder and managing partner at Range Ventures, uh, early stage fund, and has done many a fantastic business thing before that. And excited to chat with you about a few things. Uh, do you want to maybe maybe start giving a just give us a sense for uh, for Range, and then I then we, we can go into some uh, some VC VC questions, and then go from there. See where Perfect. the world takes us. Yeah, sure. So uh, Range Ventures were an early stage seed fund, as you said, focused on software tech enabled service companies focused on Colorado companies in Colorado primarily uh, not exclusively but that's our that's our focus we started the fund last year before that I was I was an operator at, at tech companies as you know Dougals and just a uh, like you guys an investing geek I mean VC is my focus but uh, I, I like I like all the realms <laughs> so re, you know uh, reader listener uh, just love to geek out on all parts of investing how much doge do you own? Zero. There you go. You passed. I, w- I wish I owned a bunch. I wish I owned a bunch. You know, this is, it's actually, this is one of my uh, uh, favorite topics is the difference between investing and gambling seems to have yes. been lost on pretty much everybody these days. And by the way, I like gambling. Nothing wrong with gambling, <laughs> but call it what it is. You you just have to call it what it is. I completely agree. And, uh, or, or speculation is maybe a nicer term than gambling if there's maybe some, but but this is complete gambling. There's absolutely no value to Doge and and a lot of cryptos out there. I'm not saying that's um, true with the entire space. But Adam, one of the things we always like to ask people, and I think it might be a fun way to start the conversation with you, is um, as much as you're comfortable, if you can explain like where you are personally invested right now. Because a lot of times, uh, sure. you know, there's in some cases, not with you, but maybe with others, there's a case of, I say this, but I actually do this with my personal wealth. And so if you could give us a little background there, I think that'd be helpful for the listeners to understand kind of your style. It's a great, great question. Well, something I've thought a lot about and spent a lot of time looking at. And I think one of the things that, that you know, the conclusions I've come to is I like to bet and bet heavy where I believe I have an edge, period. And when I don't think I have an edge, trust somebody else who has an edge. That's that's my take. I think that's hard for a lot of the people to realization to come to because people who've had any kind of success um, in any field feel like they can apply that to every field, right? I can't tell you how many times we see successful, say, real estate investors or oil and gas people who are like, hey, I'm a smart person in that in that domain. I'm going to go angel invest in tech. And I see the bets they make and I, you know, I, I feel for them <laughs> a little bit, right? Uh, to call it gambling would be kind in some of those cases. So uh, for me, I actually, bulk of my personal money is in index funds, stocks, bonds, uh, call it ballpark, the 60-40 strategy, boring long-term ETFs, low, yeah. low, low fees, rebalance, tax loss harvest, all the things, right? I have a pretty big chunk relative to what any final financial investor would tell you is okay in more uh, high-risk assets, specifically VC. And that's because that's a space that I spend my time in. I feel like we've developed a strategy at range that gives us an edge. And I feel like because I'm spending my time on it, I'll bet, my, I'll bet on myself all day long. Um, I used to dabble in individual stocks. I don't anymore. 
uh, as painful as it is for me sometimes to watch that happen. And, oh, I want to get in, want to get, but trying to be disciplined about where I think I've got an edge. I actually got listener mail this week um, asking to explain a venture fund, and I knew we had you coming on the show, so I thought I'd I'd throw that your way. Uh, can you just give the basics of a venture fund for me? Sure. So, so at a high level, we as the fund managers we're aggregating capital from our LPs, our limited partners, or the general partner. A lot of complications in here, but generally speaking, we can have up to ninety nine investors. Crazy arcane SEC rule that uh, that requires that. Everybody has to be accredited in order to invest, which is also, by the way, we can go on tangents and any of these crazy rule. You you can go on, uh, you know, you can be anybody off the street and go throw your money in Dogecoin, go triple leverage and Robinhood on, on, you know, out of the money options. But to put money in, you know, kind of where you have professional managers dedicating their lives and uh, expertise to it, can't do it unless you're an accredited investor. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so anyway, we also, one of the things that's unique about venture funds uh, is we call capital over a period of time. So if somebody says, hey, I'm going to invest $100,000 in your fund, we don't ask for that $100,000 up front. We actually uh, ask for that in chunks as we're going to make investments. And typically with venture funds, you see that over a two to four year or two to five year horizon that they'll, what's called call the capital. Um, and we do that, right? Because we don't want to be holding on to somebody's money unless we're going to actually do something with it and generate IRR. Uh, another thing on the venture fund side it is illiquid, right? So you're putting your money in, probably don't expect to see liquidity, particularly at the early stage where we operate for at least, you know, call it 10 years. And, you know, some people view that as a bug. I actually view that psychologically as a feature. And this is part of why I don't trade individual stocks, right? I know myself and my psychology, I'm not going to do well if I have second by second decisions to make on buying and selling. Some people do amazing at that. That's not me. I think where I do really, really well is spending the time up front Right, doing the research, meeting the meeting the team, making the evaluation of is this going to be a great bet long term or not, and then letting letting it compound on its own, letting the founders do their work. Uh, and I'll bet on that all day long. So I think knowing your own psychology around this stuff is really important. Um, but yeah, at a high level, that's how the the venture fund thing works. One of the things that's awesome and why I have been really heavy on the venture side, guys, is is uh, there's an incredible tax advantage here called qualified small business stock. I don't know if you've talked about this in the show before. We, we haven't, we haven't, but it's phenomenal. Yeah. Spit on it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And I think, you know, depending on what happens with capital gain taxes, maybe even becomes a bigger deal because it's something that hasn't been, you know, up for debate that I've heard yet by any politician, um, you know, starting forever, really. And, and what it is, is if you invest in an early stage company, all the tech companies that we would invest in qualify at Delaware C-Corp, um, and some other businesses too, but less than $50 million of assets. If you hold that stock for five plus years, and that's almost going to be a certainty with any successful you know, early stage company, mm -hmm. you actually get up to $10 million of gains tax-free. Tax-free. It's almost too good to be true. It's like, it's a, my opinion, a crazy giveaway, but hey, it's the rule. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's insane. And in, um, when I've gotten equity from startups in the past, I've been, I've like gone deep with the finance uh, departments to be like, are you sure we had over 50 mil? Like, are you sure it was at that point? <laughs> exactly. Right? Um, because yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Yeah. So, so if you think about the risk reward, right, when you're actually looking at, Hey, what kind of IRR return do I expect from a venture fund? And you an early stage venture fund, you compare it to a late stage fund, private equity, anything else, you've got to look at the tax difference, yep. right? It's massive. And so that's why I have gone, uh, highly in my own portfolio into early stage venture because, hey, I think I've got an edge. And oh, by the way, I've got a huge tax leverage on top of that. This week, I, I saw, uh, I haven't read the paper yet, 
but I saw the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, came out with a paper that said that over half of VC funds have actually beaten the stock market over, I think they looked at a period of like 2007 to 2017 or 2009, or 2017, something like that. Um, so just thinking about the, the high risk, like aspect of it, illiquid, yes. I wonder, I just wonder what you think about that and how you assess the risk there versus the public market. Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Just uh, let me play fact checker yeah. here. But I haven't read the paper yet, but here's the stat out of it. Let's, let's, let's pump the brakes on this just a little bit, right? Well, if I read the paper, it might go against the stat. So I'm just yeah, it, and it's a good story right <laughs> now. Do that. You want to stick with the headline? <laughs> Sound bites. Right now, if you tried to tweet that, Twitter says, "Hey, do you want to click through and actually read the article before you retweet this nonsense?" <laughs> <laughs> so, Adam, please tell us what you think about this Dougal's made-up statistic. No, I saw. I saw it too. I saw it too. I saw it too. And it's uh, uh, you know, I think part of that is historically in venture, right, really depends what part of the cycle you start your fund. And the last 10 years has been like an incredible time to be in venture. What's funny is when we were starting range in looking to start range in fall of 2019, I had, a, I had a friend who said, oh my God, you can't go start a venture fund now. This is the top of the market. And I'm like, man, if you know this is the top of the market, you should be doing something else. I think he's a lawyer. <laughs> like you, yeah. you should be making macro bets because I have no idea if this is the top, bottom or otherwise. And I heard a great quote from my role model VC, Bill Gurley from Benchmark. And he said, you've got to play the game on the field, right? Somebody asked him, how do you, how do you time this stuff? He's like, you can't, you play the game on the field. So that's how we look at it too. I have no idea if this is a good time, bad time to start a, a venture fund or invest in venture relative to other um, asset classes. It has been good over the last 13 years. I can make a pretty good argument as to, hey, this is a boom time for technology, you know, better time than ever, cheaper than ever to start a, start a new company you know, new recognition of software and the possibilities there. I don't know. I don't know. But I think that, um, you know, what you want to do is invest over time, right? You don't want to just go, hey, I'm going to throw all my money in VC bets in 2021 and that's it. No, you want to ideally make some bets in 2021, 22, like commit to the asset class. And I think you'll do really, really well over time if that's your strategy. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I mean, with range or you can talk about other experience of yours, like, Obviously, early stage VC, the hit rate is going to be lower than yeah. um, other asset classes. Like, what do you think that looks like for you guys? And um, I mean, it's asymmetric bets, right? Some of them are going to go to zero and some might go up a hundred times or a thousand times. How do you think about that whole dichotomy there? Yeah, that's exactly what we're looking for, right? And I think that's something we really filter for is the ambition of the founder and the potential for this thing to be really, really, really big. And it's something that I think is a little bit different when I shifted from an angel investor, and I did a lot of angel investing before, to a venture fund investor. An angel investor, you can say, hey, I think this thing is like could be a 2x, low, low probability goes to zero. That's a great angel investment, right? That's a terrible venture bet. That's not going to make our fund. The economics and the, and the modeling are such where we need some 10, 20, 30, 50x outliers to your point. And I think if we don't have at least you know, a third of our companies going to zero, we're not being, we're not being aggressive enough. Yeah. We're not taking enough risk. Um, so that, that's how we think of it. One other, going back to uh, the, the initial question around how you invest personally, there was a topic that we were going back and forth about that I, I'd love to, to get your view on around how do you think about like a windfall, right? Getting a, a large, like when you get one of these wins personally yeah. as an angel investor, what do you do with that when, when that all comes in at once? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one, right? Um, I think 
it's really interesting if you're in the tech world versus somebody, you know, if you're going to be an investor, usually you think of if you were to stack up all your annual, you know, tax returns, you're going to have like zero or little, zero, little, boom, big, right? Zero, 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 big, big. Like, and so it's very different than somebody who maybe is, um, you know, a professional that's like, you know, slowly increasing their income over time at a steady rate. So it requires a different mentality. There's been a lot, I mean, you guys have probably seen, there's been a lot of academic papers around, hey, if you get a windfall, do you kind of phase in over time? Do you go all in? Because what happens if you went all in and it happened to be, you know, summer of 2008 <laughs> and psychologically is going to do a number on you? You know, I think that the answer has been that I, that I saw it, maybe you guys know otherwise, was that you're probably better just actually deploying all at once, actually, uh, you know, on paper. Now, psychologically, you might be better off phasing in, and yeah. that's a big element of this. But odds are you don't know where we're at in the cycle. You never know where we're at in the cycle. So don't overthink it and just go back in if you see a great opportunity. We, we talked about this a few episodes back. I mean, it's something like 66% of the time you, you end up with more money at the end of the day uh, if you throw it all in. I mean, Adam, I, I know a deep value investing strategy that might work perfectly for some of those windfalls. <laughs> kind of counter cyclical balance your uh, high flying VC stuff. Uh, there you but go. Yeah. Hey, we'll we'll keep rooting. We want you to have those windfalls. That's a good thing. Uh, that means great things for and you and the firm, way, right? And you know, uh, uh, Skippy, like that's how I think of it too. Is my my own portfolio. I'm really conservative over here, right, with the bulk of the kind of index fund stuff, and I'm going to take a higher risk over here. So the net of it is a higher risk reward tilt. Um, and I think that's something I recommend to people is really think explicitly in buckets, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Think explicitly in buckets and then know your own psychology. I mean, you probably heard this, the theme I've been saying over and over, like know yourself and your own psychology, you know, where are you gonna, and you guys have talked about this a bunch too, which is super important, right? Of like, are you a value investor? Are you a growth investor? Are you VC investor? Like, what's your, are you a trader? Are you a gambler? <laughs> you want to yeah. flip Dogecoins and, you know, what the attendees, coin and all this all day like go for it but not for me can we so can we dig in though on the investor psychology piece like and let's talk about how you think about the partners you work with from founders to investors to everyone else like have you had someone show up with a check at your door and and you you realize that they're someone that is about a quick buck or a high maintenance investor. I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it. And you've said, I don't think this is, I don't think our psychology is going to align in a way that makes sense. Or have you had a founder who you thought the potential business idea was brilliant, but the personality didn't really mesh. Can you just talk about in your business, how you think about that challenge? All of the above, all the above. Absolutely. So we raised our fund last year. So I had hundreds of conversations with prospective investors ourselves. And we did actually, and you know, at any time, and I feel for founders too, anytime you're trying to get something off the ground, you don't know if you're going to be able to do it and somebody's offering you money, it's hard to say no, right? Until you, you know, you, you can achieve what you're looking to do. But we did a few times for for some of the reasons you said. So a couple of reasons were sometimes people wanted to force us into uh, something they thought was the right strategy, right? They viewed us as kind of the vehicle for the strategy they wanted to achieve wasn't the one that we wanted. So for example, we said we're Colorado focused. I could go into detail why we're doing that uh, from an advantage standpoint, but people would say to us, Hey, so you guys are going to be like Rocky mountains, right? You're going to do Montana and Idaho and Wyoming. And, all. and I said, Nope, Nope. Like we, we believe, you know, you got to be even more narrowly focused on that to really have an edge. So we said, you know, if you don't like that, not for, not for us. We had another investor who said, hey, we, we want to put restrictions around vice, right? You can't invest in any business that touches sports betting or, uh, you uh -oh. know, 
uh, marijuana or whatever. And not that that's our strategy, but we're not going to be restricted in, in doing that. So we said no to that as, as well. There, um, there was a, sorry to interrupt. There was a, um, at, at the Berkshire annual meeting uh, that happened last Saturday, there was a question that came up around why uh, Munger and Buffett said no to like a chewing tobacco company, but then you're investing in Chevron and that was about like hydrocarbons. Well, not, I, I thought it was an it was an interesting answer. I mean, basically, Munger came back with his usual like three word smugness, um, but but effectively said like the one is much more complicated than the other, right? And when you're drawing your lines of like what is vice and what's not, um, first of all, you have to know the business. And usually, when people are critiquing things like this, they don't understand the business side of it, and are just viewing it from their own personal angle. And so, I, I think that's an interesting. It's it's really interesting to have to say um, what is when I'm defining a vice, I'm really saying, what is my opinion on what I do or do not like? It's not as if you're, you're drawing an objective line that you can end up following. Couldn't agree more. And we, we have, we've turned down a couple of companies because of, of things that, you know, we just felt like we weren't comfortable with from an ethical perspective that weren't traditional vices. Right. But it was no judgment on whether it could be a successful business. It wasn't a judgment on the founder as you're a good or bad person. It was just something that, Hey, if we're going to forge a long-term relationship here, like we're not going to feel my partner and I aren't going to feel good about it you know, getting up every day to, to help achieve. So that's on the, on the investor side, on the founder side, absolutely. Like it is around that, you know, finding that fit, because again, we're getting into a long-term marriage with these people at the early stage, we're going to help roll up our sleeves and help them build the company. And so they've got to be people that, you know, we, we want to, we want to be a part of what they're doing for the next 10 plus uh, plus years. And a big piece of that is the ambition. Like I mentioned, right. Um, it's almost irrational ambition we have to bet on as VC funds sometimes. Like I probably wouldn't bet on myself, uh, bet on myself as a founder. <laughs> I'm too rational. If somebody came along to me and offered me, you know, five X of my money in six months as a founder, I'd probably take it, right? Shouldn't bet on me as a VC. I, I'm better off in the VCC. I want to bet on the founder that says, hell no, right? We're going to the moon. I have this larger vision. I'm not going to settle for anything less than that. And that's who we're looking for. Well, and I don't want to belabor this point because it's a joke that we like to have fun with. And so we'll find another example. But one of the this whole meme stock or meme crypto thing that's happening right now where people have this mindset, like it's almost this irrational, like channel your inner Elon Musk, like nothing is going to stop. I mean, for the longest time, for years now, the financials of Tesla for a rational person have not made sense, but it doesn't matter because he's like a space alien that's just like it, it, this incredible focus around, I dare you to tell me I can't do something because that's motivation for me to go on. So how do you, you know, you mentioned like as a, a really rational person, how do you reconcile that, that you might be working with? and apologies for the course analogy here, like an Elon Musk type character, and that might be core to your business model, but you are trying to translate back to your investors to say, this is why it makes sense. And that founder might be saying, I, I don't care about it. I don't care about logic. Like I'm going to the moon. Can you, can you expand yeah. on that? And do you have any of those cases that currently? Uh, yeah, no, I, I love I love this question. It's it, it, this is one of the the tricky parts about about VC, right? We're looking for somebody who's not rational, who's a little bit crazy, but not too crazy, right? And to find exactly where that line is, we're gonna miss sometimes. Like I, I know 
We've already had this experience a little bit with a founder who, who kind of fits that bill and, you know, goes on the other side of the line a little bit where they are a little, uh, you know, unable to be controlled and making some decisions that the investors, uh, you know, think are a little, little bit out there. But I think those are the chances you got to take. I think what's interesting, though, and really this all with the Dogecoin, it's always important as a founder to be able to tell a story, right? We say a founder needs to be the, the company's best salesperson because early on, you're trying to get people to, to you know, leave their, their great jobs and come take a risk on you customers to try out some unproven product, right? Investors to go take a bet on your wild idea. You've got to be a great storyteller. I think we're at the part of the cycle and whether this lasts forever or not, I have no idea where we are like disproportionately rewarding storytelling and hype. Yes. Right. Like it's always an important part, but now it's like, it feels like it's almost all storytelling and hype. I've seen companies that literally there's not really much change in their business between one round and the next, but it's like the the, the founder can, can tap into that hype and storytelling and investors are plowing their money in, right? Yeah, and sometimes it's the the possibility has changed. Like your view on what's possible has changed while the operations have not. Is like right. another, yeah, which relates. Well, and, and the There's comp, a fine line between Adam Newman and Elon Musk. Fine, fine line. And, and the comps have changed, Dougal. So like some of it is, hey, this business is the same. Oh, now there's a public company that captured everybody's imagination, right? And they love this space now. So boom, let's go, everybody pile in. Um, and, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I think that that is really a, a challenge to think about, hey, how much is this is just the new norm? Like how much is, you know, yeah, a, a mattress company, a company that's cleaning houses should get valued at 10x revenue, right? Because that's just yeah. the way the world is going to be from now on versus that's insane, right? Every company doesn't deserve a SaaS company valuation. And, you know, you just got to uh, focus on the long term and, and feel like that stuff's temporal. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I just got to add, this is why it's really hard to be a value investor and raise outside money because your story is not so glamorous. It's like this trash truck <laughs> has been around for 30 years and it's dirt cheap right now and it's not going out of business. And everyone's like, well, uh, I'm going with Adam and Range Ventures. There's The story they're telling is way more fun than your stupid trash truck, right? I mean, uh, I love that. You're totally right. The story matters. And right now, I think the stories are outsized in terms of their relation to valuation. Correct. I, I think yeah, maybe that's interesting. You can always think of it as a spectrum, right? And and more story and, and kind of the underlying operations, but we're at one end of the cycle right now. One of the things I got to tell you that's really fascinating about um, being a VC, and I used to run Corp Dev at a, at, a, at a public company too, where I would, you get some, you know, behind the curtain look at companies that people knew publicly and had hype. And you'd be like, oh, there's nothing there, right? Th th this company is in big trouble and everybody thinks it's the bee's knees. It, it's, it reminds me that there's a, if you guys watch the show Silicon Valley, there was an episode yeah. Oh, yeah. where yeah, the, the engineers of Pied Piper, they went to that job fair and they were like, oh, this is the hot company. We got to get a job there. They went up to the guys like, actually, we're in trouble. Can I get a job with you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I see this stuff all the time. That's what's fascinating about this world too. I mean, so I love probabilities. So give me a, a rough percentage there. Like, is that is that 50% of the time that the new hot thing is like, basically a spreadsheet model that someone built over the course of three weeks. What, what do you think that is? Ooh, I think it's probably, uh, you know, right now, probably a hundred percent of the time things are overhyped, <laughs> but I think is generally speaking in terms of like, we're like, Oh shoot, the emperor really has no clothes. I yeah. don't know. Like 20% of the time, something like that. Yeah, you know, we we asked the question. I was kind of recently like, what is the difference between a value and a growth stock? Like, really, in the end, right? We were we were discussing that, and as I I was thinking about that on my own, 
and kind of saying, okay, if we're really saying that the difference between what we're looking at, Skippy, you and I, is that you're you're saying that this thing is going to be valued more in the future because today it's valued under what it's like fair valuation is. And I'm saying this thing is going to be valued more in the future because it's going to grow into its pants effectively, yeah. right? And we're, we're both saying that it's undervalued today, but one is relative to its value, like a present value, and one is relative to its future value, right? Yeah. And what you're saying there, Adam, is basically like, you're on the extreme of that. Because like yeah. its present value is effectively zero, yes. really, in, yeah. in some cases, right? And its yeah. future value is infinite. And you have to you have to gauge how close to infinity can yeah. this thing really get, right? And yeah. is this this person I'm betting on capable of telling that story and taking it there? I'm going to say something that, that's going to be controversial for a second. So, uh, Skippy, I think that as a value investor, you are actually have a lot more in common with a Dogecoin investor than. than I love that. this. Keep going. Spit <laughs> it. Well, think think about it. so so the value investor take is hey, I'm going to hold this thing, and over time more, it's like a collectible, right? People are just going to have more appreciation for it over time, right? Dougals and I are saying, hey, I'm betting on people and I'm betting on hu human ingenuity and industry. And over time, they're going to go make this thing freaking awesome, right? And that's a wrap, people. <laughs> yeah. Um, Adam, your uh, addition for co-host is going great. I mean, Dougals is smiling over there. This is so good. I don't, I, uh, yeah, we'll have you on the show, hopefully, uh, again. I don't know that I want to derail this conversation <laughs> with that, um, but let me provide a little nuance. I, I liked I like Dougal's analogy. Like mine is more, hey, the the historical value over the past ten years, the value of this stock has been fifty bucks a share. Right now, it's twenty five bucks a share. I think that last 10 years carries some weight and I think there's a reason why. And I expect it to go from 25 to 50. Dougal's is this stock is currently trading at 25 and maybe historically it traded at 10, but I know the future's going to a hundred. So Dougal's is buying it. We're both buying at 25. We're both buying different stocks. We both see that upside and we both are calling it undervalued. So uh, yeah. the, the value growth stuff that happens and how it gets defined with like uh, price to earnings ratio and stuff is kind of hogwash. It's effectively, we're both buying stocks that we see as undervalued with some margin of safety there. Mine just probably don't have to double their revenues to get back to what I, I see as a fair price. Yeah, it's but, more, uh, more of a reversion to the mean pit, which is, you yeah, know, that, that, that's, that's the whole rebalancing you know, angle anyway. Exactly. And like, the not to, to get too fired up about this, but the Dogecoin there's no value. Like, there's no fair value range there. So, so it's not like you're, you know, I'm just, giving you, I'm just giving you bringing the fire at him. <laughs> Keep bringing it. Going back to investor psychology, how do you manage your psychology? We've talked about here how, and this is the false, Skippy calls this the false narrative I tell myself to keep myself calm. But with me, I, I both have a part of, I have like my model portfolio and the part of my portfolio where I scratch an itch. Um, and I dive really deeply into data so I can feel better about the swings, right? That's what I, that's what I tell myself. What is it that you do if you need to scratch an itch, right? And your personal portfolio, or is the itch scratching just the VC world? No, I actually, I, I've got a tiny, relatively tiny pot of money that I call my gambling account. <laughs> and explicitly, it's like I said, it's, I, I think of it as gambling, right? And I, I'm comfortable with it going to zero. I don't think I have an edge. I don't, it's fun, right? It's fun. And for me, picking an individual stock, I've, in my own psychology, I've determined 
that's a gambling, that's my yeah. gambling book, right? I'm not doing the research. I don't feel like I've got a system. I'm not doing the research that you guys do. It's just like, hey, this is fun. Because like, gambling's fun, right? Gambling's fun. But you got to just do it responsibly, do it with an amount of money you can lose and know what you're doing. Um, you know what's so funny, Adam, about that is like, you're, you're totally right. And we've talked plenty on the show about 95 to 99% of investors probably shouldn't be picking individual stocks. But, you know, I think of, of uh, stocks as an ownership in a company. And when you make a VC investment, you're making an ownership in individual companies. So I, when I hear you say you don't pick individual stocks, I go, but you do in the VC space where you do tons of research and have an edge, you know? So I think you probably have the skill set to pick great individual stocks if you have the time and expertise and every you could do the same research in public equities that you do in early stage VC, right? 100%. But the reason I, I, I like the early stage VC, two reasons. One, my own psychology. I like the forced hold and the Ill- illiquidity. Yeah. Two, I think there's still a massive inefficiency in the private markets, right? You're looking at public stocks. Everybody and their brother has access to the same information. And I would argue, guys, I don't know if you've spent much time in the hedge fund world. They've got they've got unique access that you and I don't have. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just on that. So Seth Klarman employs, I don't know, 500 people and has uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of research funds that like I obviously don't have. Right. That's one of the reasons why following his stock picks can be intriguing because, you know, they've beat the thing. Exactly. I mean, yeah. 100%. Like that's a guy I would say you can make an argument has an edge. And so for me, you know, it's the whole active versus passive. I go on the passive side of public equities, but make a damn, if you can get, if you can really get into Seth Klarman's fund and, you know, get in when exactly when he's getting in, I can make a pretty good argument that that's a compelling thing to do. But I, there's so much inefficiency still in the private market, particularly at the early stage, right? That I, I really believe that we've created range and other funds can be created that are structurally advantaged. There's still a big element of luck, right? But I feel like we're going into the casino and we can count cards. And yeah. I'll take that, I'll take that bet all day long. We could still lose, right? And you can go into the casino and you could be drunk and you could be throwing money around and you could still win. But um, you know, over a long period of time, I'll put my money where I've got an edge. Love that. What is a and tell me if you if you can't go into specifics here, but what are some interesting stories uh that that you've heard recently that you're uh, you're feeling really bullish about? Huh. Well, I, I feel really bullish about all of our portfolio companies. <laughs> so, so, so Ollie, I love my children all equally. I love my children all, all, all equally, all equally. Yeah. I think what, what, what's really interesting guys too, there, I'll tell you that there's two um, dynamics that, that, that I see at play. There's like two kinds of companies and, and different investors. One is there's a space that gets hot. So like, let's say Peloton, right? Peloton is hot in at home fitness. We have seen so many at-home fitness companies come out and people just plow their money into it. So you could either take the approach of, hey, like at-home fitness has now been created. There's going to be a massive trend here. Or you say, hey, we like a company more where like actually people haven't seen this trend yet, right? So it's a little, it seems a little more speculative, but this company could be the Peloton. And I think, you know, you, that's something my partner and I have debated quite a bit. We tend to fall more into the latter camp of what we like to see. We like to see something that maybe is not, quite as consensus yet um because that's where you i think you've got the chance for the really outsized returns yeah well we talked about this a bunch and i hope i can articulate it fairly but you want to buy peloton before it's peloton Peloton. so 
after Peloton, when the space, when people flood to the space, not only is there more capital there, there's more competition. Like that's not the time to jump into the home fitness technology space. You want to find the next thing that hasn't been exploited yet and yeah. jump in there. So I'm firmly in the latter ca camp, but I know there's probably a greater de degree of difficulty there. There's more pressure, particularly from your LPs, right? If I were to go to our investors and say, hey, here's our, here's our new investment. It's a you know, at home stairmaster that has this cool feature, and they'd be like, "Oh, I yeah. get it. That's cool, right?" Like, yeah, yeah, Peloton, it's uh, cool, the next right? Peloton. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah, yeah. Where if I'm like, I don't even know what it would be, but hey, here's this other thing, and you're like, "What is that?" Right? Like, yeah, what? I can't even imagine how that adds value to the consumer, right? Well, when, when we, I, I'll just tell you, our the first investment. I'll tell you what, the first investment we made out of our fund, and this is an investment my partner and I made personally that we rolled into our fund, is a company in Denver called Suna that uh, just raised a, a 10 plus million dollar series A from Union Square Ventures, a top venture firm, right? So yeah. company's doing great right now. We'll see how the story plays out, but we're really bullish and, and pumped. That is a company that when we met them, I, I was really, really excited about it. But man, everybody thought I was an idiot. <laughs> People were telling me something. The founder, Liz, says the same thing. People are just like, look at her like, I don't get it. What are you doing? And what they do is they're, they're a content production studio for e-commerce uh, e brands. So creating, you know, same day photo and video, um, high quality stuff. And, and, you know, people are like, what is this? Can't you just take pictures in your iPhone? You know, yep. and yep. now everybody gets it. Now everybody gets it. So, Hey, that's one where I think we were ahead of the curve on. Hopefully we can do that on a bunch more, but um, I've seen this, that play out in real time. Speaking of the the new new thing or the you know whatever the next big thing is, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive back into my my Berkshire fishbowl because it's top of mind right now. Is uh, early on in the combo, uh, Warren Buffet, which is what my finance teacher in college called him, which tells you <laughs> a bit about my finance education. Um, but so he he pulls up a list of the top twenty uh, companies in 1989 by market cap globally, and pulls up a list of the top the top 20 global market cap companies in 2021 and shows there's zero overlap. And not only is there zero overlap, but I think it was something like 13 of the companies in 1989 were in Japan, which we've talked about the, the size of the, the Japanese stock market back then. But I'm curious, I want to get both of your views. If you go, let's go forward another about 30 years, right? So now we're in, in 2050. Are there any of those top global market cap companies that still sit on that list today, you think? I think it's hard to see the fang companies being knocked off without regulation. Without regulation, you're saying? Without regulation. I think that's the yeah. risk. But I think that the the thing that's different, and again, I always hate that this time is different, but you know, I, I think in this case, for those particular companies, I think the network effect and the data they have is so strong and is so sticky that I think it's hard to, to be totally disrupted without regulation anytime soon. It's a resounding no from me, but I might just be saying that to pick a fight with Adam. <laughs> Here, here's my approach. I completely agree with Adam's thoughts there. I'm just thinking of it from a different angle. We've seen the pace of change. So something like Standard Oil was around 100 years and technically it's still Exxon, right? But Or the railroads or some of the stuff in the early 1900s was like impossible to knock off for 50 plus years. And now you just mentioned the stat from the Berkshire meeting Dougals and his point I think is that the pace of change happens so much more quickly and you can get a company like Google to go from nothing to one of the world's largest companies in what 20-ish years um, I expect that to continue to accelerate as as unthinkable as it might have been that Exxon Mobil 
1989 wouldn't it be one of the world's largest or ibm or whoever else was on that list I think we're in the same point today. It's really nearly unthinkable with the Microsoft or Apple or Google to think about them not being holding their current position. But I like to think that the pace of change has accelerated in a way that the world's largest company 10 years from now might not even be a company yet. I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm, I'm thinking more holistically around like the top, what is it, top 20 or top 30? And would, yeah, they, would they be on that list? But absolutely, I think there's going to be huge new new things created. I think there's just so much cool stuff. I mean, it's not our world, but going on in biotech, for example, there's going to be some huge companies there, I think. Yeah, it's it's, it's here's, interesting here's, to think about for sure. Here's a, here's a follow-up then. So 1989, the top company globally market cap was about $100 billion. 2021, it's $2 trillion, right? So you have a 20x difference in number one. Do we have a do we have a 40 trill bagger sitting <laughs> in, in 2050? How much of that Dougal's is multiple expansion? How much is, you know? Um, I mean, if you look at 1989, I mean, well, first of all, so 1989, again, it was Japan, right? Like, granted, there's, there are zero Japanese companies that are on the, the new list. And so the Japanese companies in 1989, I mean, that was all multiple expansion, right? right? Really, basically. So, so I assume in the US coming in, it's both multiple expansion and earnings expansion, right? I mean, we, we just had what 87%, I think it was the last stat that I saw of, uh, of S&P 500 companies that released earnings this season beat expectations. Yeah. Like, well, first of all, that says something about the expectations. I think we probably need to get a little bit better, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's crazy. All right. Let me, let me jump in here. So one, I'm not saying that the U S uh, stock market bubble is Japan in 1989, but, uh, the Cape ratio is the highest it's been in a long, long time. So that's another thing that I think argues against this. You could have I mean, maybe it's uh, Chinese social media companies 20 years from now that are the world's dominant player in terms of market cap. I think that's another thing that we're not even necessarily thinking about. I don't expect it to be as U.S. heavy as it is today, 20 years from now. That, that makes sense. The thing I do love about thing I love about this is so Apple's the two trillion dollar company, and knowing their story back in 1989, I mean, Apple was like selling stock to Microsoft, right? Like they were like trying to, they were, they yes. were trying to figure out, you know, what's next. Um, and so the top company today did exist back then, right? Um, they just, they'd kicked out their founder a few years ago and were trying to find their way a bit, but it, it's interesting. Whereas like an Amazon, right. That I think is like number two or number three is only now 20 years old. In terms of multiple expansion, I mean, it doesn't really matter, Diggles, because it's going to be denominated in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I think multiple, just as a topic, multiple expansion is so fascinating. I don't know, Diggles, you being in the tech world too, see this, but it's amazing what short memories people have. I mean, I remember four or five years ago, right, as, as I was looking at different companies from a corp dev standpoint, we'd be like, hey, this thing's trading for 15 times EBITDA, 20 times EBITDA. That's pretty expensive, yep. hot, hot growth stock. Now it's like 20 times revenue, right? EBITDA, I haven't even heard the word multiple of EBITDA for years, you know? And and it's and there's no uh, kind of, at least what I see, no like recognition that this change has actually happened. It just like slowly happens. Yeah. And this is what everybody's talking about is the new norm. You know, yeah. one of the people that seems to actually have a, a decent long-term memory is Bill Gurley. Like, yes, he does. He, he's one of the only people that seems to actually go, this is insane. Like, this doesn't make any sense. We used to talk about even now we talk about revenue. Like, it, it's hard for memories to fade that high up, I think, is the, <laughs> it's is just, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> so to, to, to wrap it up here, Adam, it's been great talking to you. Um, got a question. We asked folks, what is your dream retirement and how does that differ from your life today? Uh, 
there's no difference. This is my dream retirement. <laughs> I love what I'm doing. I don't feel like I've got, I, you know, somebody asked me, how's your job? I said, I, I don't, I, I don't have one of those. I'm never going to, I mean, this is, this is what I love. That's awesome. Do. I'm clapping yeah. over here. I don't mean to interrupt, but that's what we want, right? That that's yeah, what we're all what striving I, for. So congrats to you. Thank you. Thank you. No, this is, this is what we love. And I hope we, uh, you know, can be successful at it and um, do great for our investors and founders and, and whatnot, because this is what, you know, we want to be doing for forever. Love it. Well, thank you. Remember to rate and review the podcast, everybody, at Skippy Dougals on Twitter, skippydougals at gmail.com. Hit us up with the listener mail. Love you over in Latvia. Adam, thanks so much for coming on. We hope to talk to you again soon.